0: Tom Francis, what is your favourite game?
1: My favourite game is Deus Ex. It was on the BBC Micro, which my dad had. And um, I remember playing Granny's Garden and Castle and, I think, Battle Zone. And Battle Zone was the wireframe tank game uh, that's probably the closest to um, games we now play. But I don't have many particularly fond memories of that. I don't, don't think I play that much. Granny's Garden was like a horrible, um, I don't know, like pseudo-puzzle game where you wandered around... You Just went to different screens of extremely low res ASCII art um, and sold just total bullshit puzzles. Like, some of them were just like, oh, there's a word written on this house, and you've just got to say what the word is that's a secret word. And others would be like, you've got to guess which tree the magic thing is behind, and it's just random, and there's no way to know. And you just, if you fail, then granny eats you. <laughs> um, and then castle was a really brutal. Um, I guess like puzzle game where you started off in jail and you're jailed by these weird creatures. I don't remember. I I don't, I couldn't figure out what they were at the time. They looked like keytars, you know, like keyboard guitars, but standing on their neck. (laughs) I'm sure that's not what they were meant to be, but um, you started in a jail cell and it took me and my sister like weeks and weeks of um, just complete bafflement at this game to figure out how to get out of it. And it's like, you have to take the torch off the wall, put the stool next to the door Throw the torch onto the bed, set fire to your bed, and then jump on top of the door so that the guards rush in to put out the fire, and then you slip out behind them. And it was just like completely unhelpful; gave you no hints into anything like that. Um, and in that, like I think because of that, it was fascinating and um, became like mythological. Like it was so there was no way we were ever going to complete this game. So anything new we could find in it was kind of fascinating and and amazing. Um,
0: just, just that sense of exploration, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I haven't really kind of gone down that path with my my future tastes or I guess my present day tastes because um, it's like once less punishing thing came came along I was uh, tempted away by those um, but then I, I think like at that point it was probably just a kind of an interest and then I didn't get really obsessed with them until PC gaming and um, particularly uh, Monkey Island 2 and Ultima Underworld were the first games we got for the PC and um, obviously those are both brilliant in different ways I think probably um I mean Monkey Island's influence has definitely stayed with me and um uh probably affected, you know, uh the kind of tone I went for with gunpoint's dialogue and things like that. Mm. But I think Ultima World was the one that was kind of lighting up my brain and making me think like these things can be uh, can feel like worlds and can be like a an alternate life rather than just a, a thing where you're trying to get to the end or get a high score. Mm.
0: Like uh there was more like with with Ultima, it was certainly a world that felt unique and, explo- and explorable at the time. Like there was nothing like it.
1: Yeah, there was. Um, it had the sense that it, it had already been there for a while before you showed up, and that when you were gone again, it would carry on. Um, things like you you meet orcs, and I was familiar with orcs, and I was familiar with killing orcs. But I didn't expect to be able to talk to them, and then when you talk to them, you find you can trade with them and when you trade with them, you find they have their own inventories you know that they're walking around with their own set of items and um whether or not they're willing to give you that item for this item depends on their own particular um you know sense of valuation, and they have their own culture and their own leaders and their own religion, I think um and they live in this like particular area of the dungeon is kind of like it would be charitable to call it a town but it was a place where they all had bedrolls and stuff and campfires and um this idea that, like the the monsters in a game have their own culture and have their own lives outside of your their interactions with you um was completely new to me
0: after after ultimate like uh, and uh, Monkey Island, like what all those games like uh, after that kind of stuck out for you just before DSX i
1: remember um uh, absolutely loving Crusader No Remorse which is an isometric shoot-em-up where you're a sort of futuristic commando who's um, I can't remember the plot really but there's been a, like a rebellion and you're one of the sort of stormtroopers for the oppressive government and you are kind of in the process of playing the game you decide to join the rebels and realise that like, you're, you're on the wrong side um, but it was is isometric like 2D rendered graphics um, and uh, the weapons were just insane. It actually, had loads of really rich environmental interactions. So, if it, like, if you just fired a machine gun in a room, almost everything you hit would set fire, or erupt, or break. Um, and then you could do things like, if you shot a gas pipe, um, gas would leak out. But then later on, you'd get like freeze pipes that would leak liquid nitrogen. And if that hit a guard, it would freeze him solid, and then you could shatter him. Um, and if there's a barrel uh obviously standing up barrels you can shoot them and they explode and then if there's a barrel on its side then when you shoot it it actually rolls first so you could roll a barrel into a group of enemies and blow them all up um and i had things like remote controlled ambulatory mines that you could steer um and walk them into enemy um into enemy lines um breakable glass everywhere there was a gun that was like a Rapid fire shotgun rocket launcher. <laughs> it fired like five missiles at a time, uh, fully automatic in a spread. <laughs> it just kind of annihilated rooms And it was like, it was an amazingly advanced kind of forerunner of all the most destructive power fantasies that games would eventually grow into. And the only thing about it that wasn't sort of amazingly futuristic was um, the control scheme was awful. Um, it was purely keyboard based. You could only sort of point yourself in one of the cardinal directions. So aiming guns was a nightmare. Um, and I think it was just really kind of juddery and and strange to control. Um, But yeah, that was it was kind of set in office blocks a lot of the time, and I think that's um, part of a continuing fascination I have with games that are um, about danger and guns and, and lethal situations, but that are set in more relatable locations.
0: When you say it like that, the first thought that kind of pops into my mind for some reason is die hard when you say that.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we haven't really had a, a good Die Hard game, have we?
0: No, 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 we haven't. Like, last... When was the last Die Hard game? It was the Die Hard collection, wasn't it, on PS1? Might, I don't know. Um might have been once since.
1: I'm almost entirely PC exclusive, so I I think all of the Die Hard games were in console only, so...
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm a bit out of touch.
0: Ah, uh, okay. No, fair enough. Um, So as we get after the Deus Ex uh, era like that was more or less around the time you started popping into the industry side of things so like, like, let's touch on that like,
1: um, so actually the time I got involved in games journalism would have been um, I mean around the time of Deus Ex I was a massive fan of PC Zone which was at the time the only uh, PC games magazine <laughs> in the UK um, and I was really obsessed with that I was like um, read it from cover to cover every every month and fantasised about you know being uh, about working for a magazine like that and getting to play games and write about them for a job, um, but then completely shelved that and forgot about it because uh, it was clearly an impossible dream. <laughs> and then um, the time when I actually got involved with games journalism was actually around the time of Deus Ex Two, because the demo for that had just come out and um, the game itself hadn't launched, but um, it was kind of causing a big fuss. Um, people were, you know, bitching about the the small level sizes and all the consolification that it had uh, gone through. And I'd been playing it myself and I would had a lot of the same thoughts of, like, um, various things it didn't do that Deus Ex 1 did. But I'd also played it to death. And, I, you know, it was just a very short section of the game, but I played it inside out and I knew everything about it. And I'd modded it. I'd, like, edited the ini files to change the damage um, multipliers to make them more, like, how I wanted. And then when I was... Uh, The position I applied for at PC Gamer was as a disk editor, and it wasn't a job I had any qualifications for, really. (laughs) Nothing, I I didn't know anything about making, like that meant putting together the cover disk each month, which means kind of working with a macromedia flash interface and um, uh, trawling the internet for demos and movies and things and sort of deciding which things are worth putting on there. Um, But luckily, in the interview, they kind of just asked me more or less what you're asking me like what are your favorite games and <laughs> what do you like to play and stuff and because the deus ex2 demo had just come out i launched in i told them about like other favorite games of mine um and deus ex itself but then um uh got on to talking about the deus ex2 demo and i think i just sort of ranted for about 25 minutes about um all of the valid complaints people had but also like how much amazing stuff there was in that um in that set of tools and all the things you could do with it uh, that people weren't appreciating because they got so hung up on these um on these other problems and so i was telling stories about like disintegrating windows and throwing spider mines in and tricking enemies into fighting each other and um i found out later that they had some fairly serious concerns about my ability to actually do the job but they were so um they thought i was just so enthusiastic that i would fit in well <laughs> and so i think me ranting about the deus ex2 demo probably got me the job <laughs>
0: Lesson learned, kids always rant about your favorite games <laughs> <laughs> or or the uh, the critical sequels on us. Yeah. Um. So it was around oh two odd years ago you left PC Gamer. Yep. With um, what happened with Gunpoint? Like, what 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 drove you to make Gunpoint at first? Because obviously, like before you left PC Gamer, like you took a sabbatical to finish Gunpoint. But like at that at that point of starting Gunpoint, like what? drove you to make it essentially
1: um so this was about three years before it came out so about five years ago mm. um it was spelunky that actually kind of i would always wanted to make games i'd like after the point where i was fantasizing about being a games journalist and after i'd given up on that um, uh, but before i actually did become a games journalist there was like a period after university when i was thinking about what i was going to do i tried things like i wrote a sci-fi tv script and i wrote a design document for a game and i tried a couple other things like things you can just sort of not necessarily do by yourself but things where you can sort of investigate whether or not it's for you you know and writing was um uh, a big one but when i was writing a design document for a game it was complete bullshit because i I had never made a game i didn't know what's possible and what wasn't so it was all just um pie in the sky stuff but just the process of coming up with those systems was incredibly exciting to me. And so, again, I gave up on that dream. <laughs> gave up on two of my dreams um, and thought, well, I'll become an accountant or an insurance person because I need actual money um, and I you know, don't have any uh, sort of route into the games industry. Um, but it was always in the back of my head that I'd love to make games. And the more I wrote uh, reviews um, and other kind of analytical articles about game design... I the more I found myself sort of thinking, I know how to fix this. Like, I know what you can do differently to make this work. And in some cases, it would be like, I wish you would do it like these other developers do it. But then in some cases, it would be like, why hasn't any developer done this? Why, like, I've never seen it done this way. Why doesn't someone do that? Because I'm sure it would work. And uh, it started to get sort of a little bit frustrating because I had to rein that in. You know, it's not very good to waste a review kind of espousing your own ideas for game designs. Um, and... It was annoying. I knew I was bullshitting. I knew I was just, uh, you know, spouting opinions without any experience to back them up. And so I wanted to get that experience. But I always assumed there was no way to do it by yourself. You would need to join a team. You'd need to organize it. Um, you'd need to start at the bottom and work your way up to become a designer. Um, and so it would be, you know, years of, of work I wasn't interested in to get to the point where I'd ever get to sort of have an idea and try it out and see if it worked. Um, And it wasn't really until I played Spelunky that I thought this actually seemed doable. Like, Spelunky was the first game where it was one of my top ten games of all time from very quickly, you know, within the first few hours of playing it. Um, And it also, although I didn't think I could make that exactly, it showed me that with fairly, like, simple ingredients, you can make something that genuinely... uh, lasts forever and is brilliant and is better than so many triple a games um and until that point that there were plenty of indie games i i loved and that were you know among my favorite games particularly introversion stuff but when i looked at introversion stuff i never thought i could do that <laughs> it was always i could never do that <laughs> I, it would take a team of even people far smarter and more competent than me it would still take a team of 20 of them to do what crystal Delay does <laughs> and um Derek here is a is a design genius and uh, uh, also a brilliant artist and also um you know he does damn nearly everything and has loads of talents that I don't um but I didn't look at Splunky and think this is a masterful feat of programming like even though it is well coded it was just not a massively uh, impossibly ambitious project it was like something that somebody had programmed to I think I don't, don't know if uh, Derek even sort of thinks of himself as a programmer because he ended up hiring a programmer to do the Xbox version of Splunky, okay. um, and so I sort of felt like he, like his genius was in the design. The thing he'd done that um, was astonishing and um, amazing was the way he'd designed it, and that was the thing that I wanted to test. I just I didn't know if I'd be any good at it, but I wanted to know whether that was possible. Um, and Splunky taught me that you would you wouldn't have to be you wouldn't have to hire a programmer to find out if you're a good game designer. You could probably just try something like that. And I didn't know how the random generation works and I didn't have any confidence that I'd ever be able to do that. Um, but I thought if this shows that simple ideas can be properly brilliant if they're if the design is good enough. And so that's something I can just find out. I can just try that. And uh, I heard it was made in Game Maker, which sounds like it's aimed at beginners, and it is. <laughs> and so I looked up Game Maker. I followed some tutorials and um, and that was Gunpoint basically like the first test project I started. It was just a brown blob jumping around some black squares, but um, that was the the project file that eventually turned into Gunpoint.
0: Mm. Um, like before it came out, like you you were still on sabbatical as you were finishing up. Like was there a worry there, like in, in the back of your mind that, that you that, that, ugh, it was the there. The, this worry in the back of your head that this may not pan out as successfully as I as I want it to be, or was it just if this doesn't you know come out as well as it, as it can be? Then oh well, I, I tried. I can go back to the PC gamer. And yeah, st-
1: it was very much that really. I was um I've been very very careful throughout the whole thing to um not risk anything on it except my spare time, and um so I hadn't. The only money I'd spent was to go to GDC one year, um, and, you know, to buy GameMaker, <laughs> um, and everyone else who's working on it was working for Royalty Share, as was I, um, and so it was always the case that, you know, if this bombs, then I, now I know that this career is probably not for me, or at least this is not the way into it, um, and, you know, I was very careful to keep my job. I took a sabbatical instead of quitting my job so that if it did fail, I could just go back, um. I didn't want to, by the end of it, I didn't want to do what I was doing then, which was uh, the only, like, the thing that wasn't appealing was if this fails, I don't want to go back to my job and start a new game from scratch in my spare time again and still be working two jobs for another three years just to get anything out the door just to find out if I can improve on this. So I think I was sort of thinking that um, if it didn't work out, I would probably stop there or maybe I'd still keep tinkering in my spare time just to learn, but I wouldn't have a a big ongoing project like that where there's pressure to finish it and um uh it consumes your life because that was taking its toll on me and I definitely wanted to be um done with that.
0: After it's out. It's it's done successfully. You've left like you'd left PC gaming. You'd you'd made more than enough money to kind of last you for the next few years. So like what was that kind of feeling of freedom like, so to speak? Um I imagine it, I imagine George Michael playing in the background.
1: <laughs> it was very um very exciting, but it was kind of spread out over a, a like a few weeks because there was the period where the game was available to pre order and the demo was out, but the game itself wasn't out. Hmm. And that was at that point it was kind of um very exhilarating to see the the sales climb um and to see them get good, but also very, very uncertain. It was like it was uh much more money than I thought I would make from it in this period of time, but it was still less than I would like it to make in total, you know, ever, um, which is, you know, what you'd expect. Uh, But it was impossible to know, like, from this one-week sales, what does that mean for my one-year sales? That I didn't really have um, a very good concept of that. And so it was still very uncertain. And it, like, right before the game itself launched, it was getting to the point where I was thinking, um, okay, this is probably enough sales that um, I can uh, quit my job and um, this isn't enough to live on for the whole duration of another game's development cycle but it's uh, enough that it suggests that I'll keep making some money and it, that will keep me afloat. And then when it came out it did, um, it sort of all went up by an order of magnitude and it was way more successful than than the early sales would have predicted and um, so that was just a that became a very easy decision. It was like, well, obviously I should quit then because this is uh, enough that I could actually relax a bit and um, uh, take a break if I want and take my time over the next thing. Um, But yeah, so it happened in stages. So by the time it really clinched it that I was definitely going to do it, I was already strongly considering doing it. And um, so it wasn't like one big moment of like, oh my God, holy shit, it all just happened this instant. It was much more like two weeks of kind of, gradually ramping up my expectations and letting my hopes get a bit higher and uh, finally realizing it's going to happen and then eventually making the decision to hand in my notice and the timing was such that I didn't have to go back to the job so I, was, I released it like a month before my sabbatical was over so I had the, the four weeks notice that I had to give I think technically I should have gone back for one day <laughs> I think my notice period was such that I should have gone back to PC Gamer for one day after my three month break to have my last day uh, but I didn't do that And that was in itself quite um, uh, exciting because it's it's a massive amount of freedom, but also kind of daunting in some ways because it was like now the whole rest of my life is completely, I have to do it all myself. Like everything that happens from now on, I have to manually sort of make it happen. I'm no longer, there's no workplace I can show up to and they'll tell me what to do. I'm going to have to um, take control of everything.
0: Let's get to your favourite game then, Deus Ex. Um, so, like, how how did you first come across Deus Ex? Like, like, what kind of got you excited to play the game?
1: I think it must have been... It was certainly the demo, and I think it was probably on a demo disc, and um, probably PC Zone's demo disc, <laughs> if it was ever on there. Um, and I played it, and... um. I didn't like it.
0: <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you about that because you had mentioned previously that you like, yeah, you didn't, you got off with the wrong with the wrong well, on it, basically, at first.
1: Yeah, it was something like, um, uh, I think I I was just like running up to um, the guards, firing wildly, just treating it like a shooter, and you can miss at absurdly close range in this game, and it's the kind of thing that you know, even today, if I played a game that where that was true, if I wasn't um, appropriately prepared for what kind of game it was supposed to be, I think even today I would be like, oh this is fucking bullshit, I was like five feet away and I fired and I still missed and I, you know, my cursor was dead on his head I should have won that, and so stuff like that was annoying me, and I was just restarting and doing the same thing again and again, and um, my takeaway was like, this game is absurdly, brutally hard and it doesn't seem like it's really for me but I think I was just sort of, maybe there wasn't much else to play, or maybe I was just kind of intrigued by how hard it was and so I kept on messing around with it and um, eventually learned about stealth <laughs> and uh, not necessarily attracting the attention of everybody all the time. Um, there was a training bit, wasn't there, that kind of explicitly taught you about stealth. And I definitely didn't play that before I played the game. I don't know if that was in the demo or, um, or whether it wasn't, but um, I just kind of kept bashing my head against the game itself and getting killed repeatedly because you can die in one shot. Um, and then sort of just slowly got the hang of it and started to avoid people and skirt around people. And it still wasn't really, really clicking for me. It wasn't like th- I wasn't thinking, wow, this is incredible. Um, until I kind of, um, I got most of the way up that, uh, the inside of the Statue of Liberty, which is the demo level. And um, there's a bit where I sort of slipped past a bunch of guards, taken out individual ones. Um, and there were two guards in front of me talking and they were just standing there and there wasn't really any way to get past them without either of them seeing me because they were facing each other. So, you know, they kind of covered the whole, um, the whole area. And, uh, I was trying to think like, I, by that stage, I knew the mechanics well enough to know that if I walk right up to someone and point my gun in their face and I press fire, then they definitely die. But I can't do that quickly enough that I can be sure the other guy won't kill me while I'm doing it. You know, I can't uh, kill two of them that way. Um, and I was just looking through my inventory and I realized I had a, a fire extinguisher. And um, so I equipped that and I stepped out and sprayed the fire extinguisher in both their faces and then headshotted each one of them while they were choking on the <laughs> fire extinguisher stuff. And that was the moment it clicked. There was like, I suddenly sort of saw the whole thing in a completely different light and realized it was about coming up with, you know, uh, tactics like this and improvising with what you have and figuring out how to use a... a Wider set of tools than just guns to get around problems that are basically impossible with just guns.
0: We'll, we'll touch upon uh, back, back on the game uh, in a, in a little, little bit, but like getting to the the kind of developer set of things, before, um, Ion Storm. like had you played any of the previous stuff like Ion had done like before DSX, like especially like Daikatana came out like just before DSX, if I remember correctly.
1: I don't think I ever played Daikatana, I was following it in the in the press. um, And I was aware of it as, I I don't think I was ever excited about it really. There were previews and I know they were making a big deal of it and marketing it heavily, but um, I wasn't all that interested. And um, then I don't think I ever played it when it actually came out. Um, So I don't think I'd ever played anything by Iron Storm before this.
0: Obviously the only part of marketing that I would remember from Daikatana is obviously the famous... John Romero was about to make his bitch kind of ad- yep. advertisement. Oh dear! Like I think he, he said himself, like he really regrets doing that now. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. Um, it's not just um, the, uh, Romero that was at the studio. There was also Tom Hall um there as well. Like kind of uh, um, it was basically Romero and Hall at, uh, at the studio coming over from Ed Software, but also as well like. There was Warren Spector. There was also Harvey Smith and Jordan Thomas. And, like, that's a very powerful set of alumni right there. Like, just just touch upon that, basically.
1: Yeah, I, I sort of... I remember thinking... Um, I remember finding out that someone... I actually don't remember who... Um, I was looking at the the credits list for Ultima Underworld, which are one, one of my first um, games I got really excited about. Um, and Deus Ex and System Shock Two, which I was a massive fan of, and a bunch of others. And I sort of discovered, um, of my own volition, that you know there was this kind of like holy set of people who'd like there wasn't really one person who'd been involved in all of them, but there was like a family of people, and each one of them had been involved with, like three or four of these um, games, and they were so exactly my kind of games. And um, I remember realizing like, oh, these people like understand something about games that I really respond to, and they like, the things they make are my kind of thing. Um, but I didn't really... I, I'm always kind of um, less aware of that stuff than maybe I should be in terms of who worked on what. I keep forgetting which which of those people worked on which of those games. Um, and even now that um, I'm lucky enough to know some of them, um, I still kind of forget sometimes who they've worked with and stuff. Like, I was at, um, at GDC... Um, I know Jordan Thomas um, quite well these days, but I um, didn't know David Pittman that well, who's the creator of Eldritch, and I introduced them to each other, and then I realized that they, like, David worked for Jordan on Bioshock 2 <laughs> <laughs> like, for quite some time. <laughs> and so yeah, I, I often lose track of like who's responsible for what, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely conscious of this um, list of of people who are having incredible track records and that it's basically immersive sims that's the kind of the common thread and uh ultima underworld was an immersive sim um in a sense it was also an rpg and it's kind of more often categorized that way but it certainly um kind of led to uh all these other games like system shock and um um ultimately deus ex
0: um uh specifically Warren Spector then. Um like I, I, I interviewed um Spectre this year, not not necessarily for, you know, his past games, but more of his brand new role at the Dennis Sam's Gaming Academy in Austin. Um but like I'm I'm assuming you've obviously interviewed him a few times on DSX while you were a uh PC gamer and
1: No, I never have actually.
0: Oh really? Ah, okay. Ah, well ah. I figured of thought...
1: I've never met him either.
0: <laughs> oh. Is it like obviously you you would like the interview though, I would guess then. Like as as even as just or even just chatting about their uh, sex, just kind of curiosity of what worked, what didn't or and what Yeah,
1: happened. in in some ways. I think like at the time I really would have. Um these days I feel like it's um uh probably the last thing he wants to hear (laughs) like he's probably been asked all the questions i could ask a million times and there is like a huge wealth of info out there you know there's talks he's given and um there's probably more info out there than i have consumed that i that i could about the making of that game um and i often i don't really know that much about the making of it um but i often get the impression that there's an element of chance to how it came together and that there's a lot of things that they did as a kind of unhappy compromise that ended up making the game work really well. Like, War Inspector said something to the effect of, um, like, everything Deus Ex does, it does quite badly, but it just does a lot of different things. And um, it's that breadth that, that makes it work. And there's, there's some stuff like the way stealth works in Deus Ex. I prefer to the way stealth works in dedicated stealth games like Thief and Splinter Cell. Um, and it's, I think it's a product of the crudeness of the stealth system. It, like Basically, enemies can barely see you from more than about 20 meters, and uh, you can just get away with absurd things. And that, uh, I think, is a compromise made because they didn't have time to make a proper fully-fledged stealth system, but it ends up working better than other systems that were more um, sophisticated because it's less of a challenge, and so it kind of gets in the way less, And the stealth games I love now are things like um, Far Cry 3 and more recently Metal Gear Solid 5. And these are games that give you an insane amount, and Deus Ex Human Revolution, Um, all of which give you massive uh, stealth advantages. So enemies can see you better in those games, but in Human Revolution, you can hug a wall and then it goes into third person and you can just see over the wall. So you can see everything and they can't see you at all. And so you get these... Grossly unfair advantages in um, Metal Gear. If you've got the dog, I mean, even without the dog, you can look through binoculars and tag everyone like you can in Far Cry, um, Far Cry Three and Four. And after you've tagged them, you can see them through walls all times. You have perfect intel about them all the time. And in Metal Gear, if you have the dog, you also automatically tag people who are anywhere near you. So you basically never have to worry about being surprised by anyone ever again. And these are crazy things. Like Thief didn't have anything like that, and um, the old school stealth games didn't have those things. And Deus Ex didn't have anything like that, but it just made stealth really easy by just making people virtually blind. And so I think it's kind of partly chance that that works so well. (laughs) I don't really know, of course, but I kind of... So when I think about Deus Ex, I I sort of see it as a happy coincidence that it works so well, and um, less that it's Warren Spector as auteur genius made it all work perfectly with, um, you know, masterful foresight and stuff.
0: You said yourself, like, perhaps... Don't know as much about making of the game than you should have. Um, but I do want to ask, like, development started like f- from around or Spectre got the initial concept in around ninety three, back when he was still at Looking Glass, and in fact, like the kind of initial development started at Looking Glass before Breadfruity Ion Storm, like, and then pre-development at, at Ion Storm uh, started around ninety seven, and the game came out in two thousand. Like, what? how do you think that game could have been uh and certainly in terms of influence and or certainly how 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 do you think the s x could have come out around nineteen ninety three let's say rather than you know two thousand back then, back when you know there was two two thousand was around post metal gear era anyways so like i want to know like how much Ugh, I'm trying to find the words of how to phrase this question correctly. But, <laughs> but how do you, how do you think Deus Ex would have panned out uh, in in the early '90s, and was before it did eventually come out in the mid in the early two thousands, even?
1: So do you mean if it was released in that state, or if it was released in its in its actual state, but just much earlier?
0: Just released much earlier, basically.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's well, the thing that struck me for ages after Deus Ex came out was that the way. The frustrating way in which it sort of failed to influence anyone, (laughs) like for ages afterwards, it was just like almost became a running joke. Because when is anyone going to make anything like Deus X? Because nothing seemed to come anywhere close, and it was quite a long time before anyone even sort of before I started hearing people say that they wanted to make something like Deus X. Because as far as I recall, it wasn't massively commercially successful on launch. I'm sure it's been a a, had a great long tail. but it wasn't sort of revered as like the massive blockbuster hit of the decade or anything. Um, and then once I was kind of getting into games journalism and, um, writing about this stuff, uh, it was a common refrain where we would just ask ourselves like, why is, why aren't there more games like Deus Ex? Why aren't people making this stuff? And then I, I feel like the next time I can really remember playing a game that felt like it had that DNA was Bioshock. Um, uh, which of course does sort of have a lineage going back to those immersive sims, um, and then since Bioshock, it actually feels like Bioshock was the one that sort of said, "Hey, you can make a Deus Exi game, but also be massively commercially successful, <laughs> and um, it can work as an action game, and it can um, you can have it both you can have it both ways basically, and you have mainstream success and have critical acclaim and uh, all these rich, interesting systems." Um, so my impression—I might be completely wrong—but it didn't feel like Deus Ex was having a huge influence on people for years afterwards, and it sort of felt like it took another game to come along and show you show people that you could do it with commercial chops.
0: Basically, essentially, with Bioshock, it showed you could have your cake and eat it, essentially. Yeah. Um. So I want to I touch upon the the locations in the game as well. Like there was New York. Paris, Hong Kong, just to name a few. And there was all those as well, like Area 51 as well. Um, like, you, you talked about um, exploring the world of Ultima um, for the first time when you were first getting into games. So like, how, how was exploring like, Deus Ex's world uh, at that time for you?
1: Um, it was great. I really love the... Um, like I said about Crusader, there's something about more real-world locations that I really respond to. And it's not that I want games to be just about real life, I want them to be about these uh, like um, thriller type situations, but uh, I like them to be set in in the real world because it kind of it's a more believable fantasy, and I can get more. Uh, basically, I just really want to be a spy, <laughs> and Deus Ex really sold the spy fantasy by having all of these places um, that were. I wouldn't say. They were that recognisable to me. I hadn't been to most of them, and um, they also had this sort of very clunky or very chunky sort of square feel that uh, games of that era generally did. But just this, just by telling you, "Hey, you're in Paris now," or "Oh, oh hey, you have got to go to Hong Kong now," um, it gave you this globe-trotting feel, and you felt like you were, you know, just um, flying around the world to wherever the mission took you. And then it had these um, sort of hub levels. Um, like uh, Hell's Kitchen and um, I forget where it is exactly in Hong Kong, but the the sort of the labyrinth of markets and um, canals and stuff in Hong Kong where you weren't in any danger, um, you could get into trouble, but uh, you were free to walk around until you um, uh, tried to do something illegal and talk to people and it was basically an RPG for a little while and it would become... Um, uh, almost like a different game and that stuff was the main thing I was responding to in Deus Ex was the sort of wealth of tactical options and how you can approach combat situations um, but I did love that level of of background detail and um, just that variety I remember finding in Hong Kong um, actually yeah one of my favourite bits of the sort of explorey side of it was um, Maggie Chow's apartment in Hong Kong um, who has like a sort of penthouse above a hotel, and um, it's got a, like a secret base in it. If you if you find the way to open the secret door, and you can get the dragon's tooth sword in there, and there's MJ12 troopers and stuff. Uh, but before you do that, you're just sort of you're a guest of hers, and her maid asks you to wait in the lobby, and um, you have a very kind of like spy like experience that you, I wasn't used to in games. And out on her balcony, that that encounter can play out in all sorts of ways. You can either get into her secret base um, or not. You can get discovered doing that or not. Um, you can get in a direct fight with her and kill her. Um, or if you leave her alive, she shows up later. Um, but I, I think in, in the course of one of the fight with her, or maybe it was with the MJ-12 troops, I think I'd fucked up the, the sneaking into the secret base part and I tripped a laser wire and I just sprinted out. I ran past Maggie Chow. I smashed her window open with a crowbar, and then I just, I saw a balcony across the street and I just threw myself across the gap and landed on this balcony and uh, got away from the troops. And uh, then, you know, the, the only place I could go from there was to open the door, the balcony door. And I got inside there and started, like, snooping around and um, found a shotgun and a computer, I logged into the computer. And I found out it was Jock's apartment, who's your helicopter pilot. <laughs> and I just, by chance, threw myself onto his balcony and broke it into his house. Oops.
0: Just say "oops." Essentially,
1: <laughs> yeah, I had that sense of you know that guy who flies me around everywhere. He lives somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, like with DSX, like it was essentially with games. Like, for, certainly for my generation, because like I, I I got into games around ninety-seven, so just before DSX. But I I more or less associate games within the past decade when I when it comes to us. Like, but with DSX, there. The the key word for it was choice, and yeah, like choice is such a marketing term these days in games. <laughs> it's just bewildering. But with Deus Ex, it literally meant it. Like w- when I when I associate the word choice, it just my the first thing my mind just thinks of is just story, and like or, or with certain games, I don't know but like with Deus Ex, it wasn't just choice was story but choice in how you played more or less the game
1: yeah there there were critical plot choices but they they were never really the most interesting thing to me there were a couple of things where it was really surprising to learn oh you can not do that or you can this guy can survive or uh, that kind of stuff but a lot of that stuff was either very simple or it was um kind of badly handled like the thing where your brother was injured in the hotel and you get ambushed um you can go to extraordinary lengths to try and save him. You can wipe out all of the troops who come to kill him, and it's really difficult. You're absolutely surrounded. You have to use all your tactical genius and um, and stuff. But if you, after you've done that, if you leave through the window, he dies. <laughs> and if you leave through the door, he lives. Even if you left everyone else alive, it's just which exit you go through. So that like that branching stuff was impressive that it was in there at all, but it's actually quite badly handled in some ways. Um, and yeah, the thing I was um, much more excited about was the much more kind of um, uh, much less binary choices, choices where you have um, a huge possibility space that you can explore. And in particular, how to infiltrate this building is the kind of the, the most exciting bit. I think that almost um, my favorite bit of most Ex levels is the start where you are, instead of being dumped into the building, you are usually arrive at the grounds of the building and you can go entirely around the building in, in 360 degrees and climb on top of it or get on top of neighbouring buildings and uh, how you actually get inside is completely up to you. And that stuff, that I guess that does boil down to a sort of discrete number of entrance points. You know, there will be a vent here and there'll be a a, a glass roof here and a window here and a locked door there and a locked door there and a sentry guard there. Um, and those are sort of the sum total of the ways you can ultimately get in, but um, the way it can actually unfold with roaming guards and with whatever tools you happen to have with you, which ones, um, which entrances those that give you access to, and which ones they don't, um, it feels like a much larger possibility space than that. It feels like it's almost infinite um, of amounts of possible ways it can go, and in particular, I remember uh, I loved the. I think it's the Vandenberg base where they dump you on the roof and there's a skylight there but if you walk over a little bit further you can find a maintenance hatch Uh, or you can just slide off the roof completely and go back into the grounds and circle around there and there are just so many ways into that building and each one um, leads you to a different part of the building and i think there's there's kind of stuff to do all throughout that building and all throughout the surrounding ones and so which which tasks you can do first depends on which way you came in and then once you've done those objectives, how you get out, you know, that's going to go through one of those entrance ways again. Um, and yeah, I love that sense of freedom. I still, that's the thing that it really hasn't been surpassed that, that I can think of. Um, and Deus Ex Human Revolution, I absolutely love. And I, I was really into minds as to whether to pick that or this for my favorite game because I go back and forth. Um, and I think that one's much more uh, appealing in a tactile way, it has much better feel, and um, almost all of the options you can do are more fun to do than they are in DSX One. But the one thing it doesn't have that DSX One has is that sense of like massive space, just having these huge areas and being able to go anywhere you like in them and figure out from there how do I get to my objective, or is there a better way around, and can I circle way, can I circle all the way around and find new ways in. And Human Revolution has it does have a lot of roots, and it does. A very good job of that, much better than most games. But I didn't feel like it quite had that sense of total freedom, that kind of that sense of space.
0: You're obviously a massive fan of the systems of that game because, like, it's certainly an influence on what what you've been making, like with uh, Heat Signature and with Gunpoint. Like, mm. like the options that, that Deus Ex gives you stealth or go and guns blazing, or just even like pure dialogue. Because I like for me like obviously there's a bit, I should disclose up front like a baseline for me in terms of the series is Human Revolution and the fact you can use one of them or even all three uh, depending on uh, certain circumstances um, is just it's just amazing like how you could do that like I remember um, a very unique um, demo uh, of Human Revolution or not so, well not unique but it was certainly unique to me in the way it was presented in that you, like, I lost Montreal, it was was Gamescom, and they were presenting Human Revolution, and they presented three ways to play the game. It was just stealth, guns blazing, or uh, just dialogue. It was in Detroit, I remember. I think it was Jean-Francois Dugas and Jonathan Jack Bellette that was in in the demo room, and they were just demoing these three ways to play. But, um, like, like going back to Deus Ex 1, like, um, like, I remember, like, I I, I was reading your um, Human Revolution review for um, PC Gamer, and, I remember, and I, I remember how you first kind of started out that review with an anecdote of how you managed to use these kind of, a combination of these systems in uh, kind of getting past uh, security guards. like. Yeah. Like, are there any other similar anecdotes that you want, like... Along those lines that you want to give that are from Deus Ex One or that you can remember, analysts?
1: Yeah, I have a, a few. Um, and they tend to be. I think that, the, that kind of three paths thing, um, that's something that um, has become quite popular now. I think with Deus Ex, I guess I probably did those early on. I mean, I didn't really ever do a Guns Blazing because I guess that was my first attempts. And that's when I thought it was a really difficult shooter and I kind of hated it. <laughs> um, and one of the unique things about Deus Ex that hasn't been echoed in things like Bioshock or Human Revolution or modern uh, takes on the same thing is that the direct approach kind of wasn't viable. It was, the direct approach killed you and that was what forced you to think of these clever approaches. Um, and so I would I would come up with playstyles each time I played and I'd come up with um, uh, sort of rules for myself. Like uh, instead of pure stealth and avoidance um, or like pure non-lethal I would try being stealthy but lethal so no one's allowed to see me but if they do if I'm in danger of being seen I'm allowed to kill them and as long as it's quiet and as long as no one else hears and stuff like that Um, and one of them was um, I'm not allowed to directly attack anyone so like a coward playthrough where it's okay if people die but I can't pull the trigger and I can't hit them directly I have to like trigger a turret to attack them or trick their enemies into attacking them Um, and I think it was during that Playthrough when I on Liberty Island again. I was um, at the terminal that unlocks the door to Gunther's cell. Uh, he's been locked up there. You got it's like a side objective to rescue him. And from that terminal, you can access. There's a turret. Um, there's a the door to the cell, and there's a camera. And you can look through the camera. And on the camera, you can see yourself. You can see yourself at the terminal because it's in front of the um, the camera that's pointing at it. And uh, while I was looking at myself and while I was figuring out how to open the door, um, a guard ran into the room and pointed his gun at me. And they the game isn't paused when you're using a terminal, but they didn't want you to die without knowing why. And so no one is allowed to shoot you while you're looking at a terminal. <laughs> but if you're looking through a camera and you're watching the guy, you can see him not shooting you. Um, and so he just stands there with you at gunpoint. And he... Won't do anything as long as you use the computer. But as soon as you stop, he's going to immediately fire. And at that range, he's going to immediately kill me. He's going to be aiming at my head. He's going to hit. And I'm dead. So I have to stay in the computer <laughs> and have to figure out what I can do to deal with this. And there's a turret in the room. So I thought, okay, I'll set the turret to attack enemies and uh, it will deal with him. But unfortunately, there was he was standing right in front of the door to Gunther's cell. And the turret couldn't shoot past a corner of the wall that was in the way. So there was solid level geometry between the gun and him. And so the gun could fire at him all day, but it wouldn't ever um, actually kill him. And so uh, I was thinking, shit, what the hell can I do? Because like, my options are actually pretty limited here. I've only got the buttons I can press on this computer, <laughs> and that's the only thing I can use to save myself. And then I realized, well, there's only one other button I can press, and it's open the door, and the door swings open, and it swings open outwards. And when it did so, it pushed the guard away from the door and out into the open where the turret shot him. <laughs> it's like that was a little microcosm of Deus Ex's systems all, you know, meshing together. Because it was actually quite unusual at that time to have kind of physics of any kind. And its physics were very crude. You couldn't have like tumbling crates or anything. Everything had to sort of stay upright. But things could push each other and and an opening door would push a character. And uh, those, there was no real reason for that particular terminal to give you access to a camera because obviously it was showing you the area you're already in so you didn't need to see it but they just kept those systems consistent throughout so if there's a terminal and there are security cameras the terminal lets you access the security cameras and they wanted the camera there so that the the turret could see you and all those things kind of came into play and i often think like the best moments in deus ex were not when you have infinite options but when you when you start with those infinite options and then they get taken away from you by circumstance and things go wrong and unexpectedly difficult problems arise. And because the, the obstacles are so harsh, the, like the damage enemies do is so uh, enormous, um, those hard obstacles kind of cut down your options. And then when you're left with only a few, sometimes it's, you know, someone walks around a corner and because you, you know they're going to kill you, if you don't immediately kill them, you have to kill them. And that's um, a kind of a boring uh, option. But sometimes when it cuts down, if your possibility space is big enough to begin with, when if you take a random chunk out of that by just unforeseen circumstance, sometimes what you're left with is something really obtuse. Like, I'm going to solve this problem by opening a door, <laughs> or I'm going to throw something at this thing. Uh, I saw a video once of someone who killed Ana Navarra by dropping multi-tools on her head. Because <laughs> he had 20 multi-tools, and I guess they do like one damage each when they land on, on her. And that wasn't enough, but he could drop them on her head from where it was standing and pick them back up. <laughs> and so he just dropped them endlessly on her head and killed her. Um, wow. I also, there was one other where, um, uh, just like a, a really, really basic thing um, that really made me sort of appreciate Deus Ex's systems driven approach to everything um, was in some kind of air base i think there's like a helipad and the control room for the helipad is locked and i couldn't find the key for it and um i think maybe it was one you couldn't hack with multi-tools and i was standing the other side of the this locked door trying to figure out how to open it trying to figure out if i could blow it up with explosives and stuff um and then i just heard footsteps beyond it and i thought well i've got my silenced weapon but i also still got the old unsilenced weapon and if I just take out the standard unsilenced pistol and just fire it, then um the guard hears the shot and the guard has the key to the door, so the guard unlocks the door himself and then he comes through and I just take out the guard and then I'm in. And that was like really simple manipulating of systems, but probably wasn't an intended solution by the developers. It might have been, I suppose. Um but it felt like a natural consequence of all the rules presented to me, and it felt like it wasn't, some, it wasn't like a puzzle that had been set up for me to solve. It was just, I just thought of a way around this. Um, and that was kind of, although Gunpoint was inspired by, like the thing that made me decide to make Gunpoint was spelunky, Uh my objective with Gunpoint was to try and capture some of what I like about Deus Ex. And um, before I knew what the hacking system would be, and before I like, came up with the idea for Crosslink and that kind of stuff, it was just going to be an infiltration game, and my sort of standard for how it would work was: you've got to be able to fire a gun to attract a guard who will open a door for you. And uh, that is still possible in DSX, in sorry, in Gunpoint. <laughs> um, but that kind of yeah, simple manipulation of quite conventional elements to create uh, an unconventional solution was something I really wanted to get.
0: Like with, with Deus Ex, was there never an option to try and play the game normally as 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 much as you could?
1: Yeah, there's. You can't, in DSX-1, you can't get through it without killing anybody um, because there's a, I think, like, their intention was to force you to kill about four or five people, but um, the community has found ways around it. Like, there's there's a bit where if you haven't killed An Navarra by the time you go back to Unaco HQ, then uh, you can't get out of the building because Alex... Uh, jacobson won't give you the key because he's scared of anna and so you have to kill her before he'll give you the key and that's the only key to that door it can't be hacked it can't be um blown up uh but someone figured out that if when you confront anna navara you can throw a gas grenade at her (laughs) and it won't kill her but she'll try and get out of the blast radius so she'll run away and if you throw gas grenades in the right place, she'll try and run through the door, and she's got the key to the door, so she'll open it for you, (laughs) and then you can get out that way. So you don't have to kill Ana Navarra. I think it's true that you don't have to kill Gunther. Um, And there's... I think there's... I feel like there's more than one person you have to kill, but one person I know of that, as far as I've been told, you always have to kill is um, the guy at Area 51 Missile Silo, He's just like standing on a crane, he's just like the administrator of that facility. And for some reason he has to die before the game will progress. Um but yeah, like in terms of the actual normal enemies in normal situations, you can always um get past them. I think it's I haven't checked, but I think it's possible to totally ghost it so no one ever even is even alerted to your presence. Um and yeah, obviously like Death Extreme Revolution was um they kind of dropped the ball on that because they... It's very strange that the way the bosses worked out for that because they have an achievement in the game for never killing anyone, but the achievement had to specify uh, bosses don't count (laughs) because the game does force you to kill bosses. And it's not even, like... It's not even sort of elegantly done. Like, your character just does it in the cutscenes. Just without your permission, he'll just kill the bosses. Um, And apparently they're fixing that for the next one because it did cause a lot of... um, uproar
0: mm, a lot of brouhaha. um so jc denton as a, as a as a protagonist like how how did you um feel about him as a as a protagonist compared to adam jensen or alex Stee?
1: um he's i like him he's kind of he sort of adapts to what you want him to be and they you know did a good job of not giving him too much uh personality until you've told him what to say, you know, in the, in the intros and um, conversations with your brother and stuff, he's just uh, very down to business. Something about his voice um, makes him more likable than most protagonists, because, uh, like, the two protagonist types I really hate that are very common in, in games are the macho asshole, who's just kind of a jerk to people, mm. um, and the doe-eyed idiot who just walks around Leary saying, what? What's going on? What's happening here? And the, you know, neither of those people are people I want to be. And JC Denton did a good job of like, he does have to ask a lot of questions. Like that's so just a comes with a job of being a protagonist is the player needs to know stuff. And so you've got to go around and ask people stuff. Um, but he had, I think he was kind of cool. He had a, like a casual way of asking people stuff that didn't make him sound like, what's happening? But also didn't make him sound like a jerk. And if you it's quite subtle but if you like someone tells you something and there's a dialogue option to ask more about it he becomes quite um there's some conversations that get quite philosophical about you know the nature of, of humanity and government and um how people should live and stuff and the more you click on those options the further down those dialogue trees you go the more kind of forthright jc will get with his own input he'll kind of he'll put a a suggestion to the person and kind of get involved a bit more with the debate. And it feels like the game is kind of sensing, oh, this person actually wants to have a proper debate about this. So we'll stop being a blank protagonist and we'll start actually participating in it. Um, and then there's other stuff like, again, coming back to Liberty Island, you, your mission is to subdue or get the, the terrorist leader to surrender. And when you do, a UNAT co-agent comes up behind you and tells you, it kind of relieves you of duty and says that they'll come in and clear up the rest. Uh, but you can kill that guy. (laughs) And if you kill that guy, then when you go back to base to report it, uh, to, uh, you know, debrief, then Mandalay says, do you know what happened to the agent we sent up to relieve you? And you're like, he hasn't reported in and, um, JC will cover for you. Like he'll lie for you and say, no, I didn't see him. (laughs) And so I had that feel of like this guy, JC Denton is a sort of entity doesn't really know what I'm thinking or what I'm planning. But whatever I do, he'll kind of just go along with it. And, like, if I just killed someone who's on my side, he won't ask me why. He'll just quietly cover for me and just say, no, I didn't see anything about that.
0: <laughs> just that kind of non-conspicuous of, uh, feeling of, I don't know what happened to you. <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, Like, what, what other characters in the game kind of stood out for you as well?
1: I tend to respond most to, like, the interactive parts of the game. And so the sort of the pre-written story I'm not that interested in, so... um. I can't even remember the arch villain's name. I want to say his name is Bob. <laughs> um uh, him and Simons. Um I didn't care about um uh, <laughs> I really can't remember his name. I'm just gonna call him Bob. I didn't care about Bob. Uh but I did uh have a kind of ongoing relationship with Simons because he's um uh kind of involved in Yatko and you run into him several times. And those scenes are interactive. You know, you get to decide what to say to him. And you can also kind of Again, push the boundaries of of what the game will let you do, and Simon's is like uh, cooler than you, and just completely unimpressed by everything. Just has an even um, less impressed voice, and I think it's the same voice actor actually. Um, and he's a jerk and completely dispassionate, doesn't care about anything. Um, and I managed to get into a situation where uh, what i'd done was so unexpected and so outside the realm of normal human behavior that even walton simon said jesus christ denton <laughs> <laughs> and it was um one time when you return to unaco hq he's going to um interrogate some prisoners he kind of like i think just as you arrive he arrives too and he's got some men in black with him um or maybe you just see the men in black actually and they say like don't disturb simon's he's got some important interrogations to do in the prisoner wing and so i went to the prisoner wing naturally and you can—he's um, in a cell with two NSF agents, I think, um, and is interrogating them and asking them stuff about, you know, their operations. And I think if you just sort of walk there at a normal pace, the door is sealed, so you can't intervene. It's behind bulletproof glass and stuff. But if you really sprint, you can get into the cell before the door closes, <laughs> and so you're in there when he interrogates them. And I. I sprinted in there and then took out my flamethrower and burnt both of them to the ground, <laughs> which was just in the spirit of experimentation, really. I just wanted to know what I could and couldn't do. And uh, I knew I couldn't attack Simon's because I think, like, certainly he'll attack back, and I think he's invincible. But if you, <laughs> if you set light to his prisoners, then he just turns and said, Jesus Christ, Denton. <laughs> and that was, like, that made it a really memorable character moment, because that's a guy where, you know, in any non-interactive medium, and even in most games... An unflappable character is completely unflappable and they'll never be flapped because the writer has decided that they'll never be in a situation that could possibly flap them. But in a game that lets you be a bit more interactive and lets you kind of um, accounts for your behavior, even if you go completely mad, uh, it's great to kind of find out, what would Simon say if I just did something so fucking mad (laughs) that no one could possibly go without commenting on it?
0: WWSD. What w- <laughs> what would Simon do? <laughs> uh, um. So, uh, moving on from Deus Ex One, then, like moving on the um, Invisible War, like you mentioned, uh, like the amount of time spent with the demo, like the twenty minute rant that got you the PC gamer gig. <laughs> um, like what stuck out for you in terms of Invisible War, and it was like like you'd mentioned the criticism that it got, but like what was it that stood out from two that you know kind of yeah what what kind of jumped off you from 2 analysts
1: um so it is a very different game and i think if it had been released under a different name if it was just called invisible war and didn't have the ex name attached to it i think it would have been much better received because it's a very, it's a far future sci-fi game so it's totally divorced from the kind of real world feel of Deus ex um it does have um the same kind of like tactical flexibility and that's what that's why i still really loved it um it's kind of goes further. And actually, like the upgrade system, the orgs in Deus Ex 2 are way better than Deus Ex 1s. Like Deus Ex 1s, I barely used them because they were so just superfluous to the central equation of the combat. And you know, like, some of them were, were terrible. Some of them were grossly overpowered. Um, there's one that heals you, that makes you almost invincible in Deus Ex 1. And Deus Ex 2, they seem much better thought out. And you had to make kind of difficult choices about which ones you took. Um and there was a great one that added a little bit of EMP to your melee attacks. And so that meant you could like sort of, my favorite weapon in it was the Tonfa baton, which is like a T-shaped kind of truncheon thing that you, um, uh, essentially works like a punch and you just kind of hit them with a bit of the stick when you punch people. And I found that incredibly satisfying. And as I said before, I, um, I modded the damage values in Daretec, so, um in Ex 2, because it really, like a lot of people, it really bothered me that shooting someone in the head didn't kill them that That seems like, I think at the time, that was like a religious edict for me. (laughs) It had to be true. Otherwise, it wasn't a good game. Um, And so I I multiplied the damage that you dealt and the damage the enemies dealt until that was true. Um, And that also meant that punching someone in the face would knock them out. And that's incredibly satisfying. That was way cooler than any melee attack in Deus Ex 1. And it also had Ragdoll, which Deus Ex 1 didn't have. So you could, um, you know, when you did knock someone out, they flopped in a kind of hilarious way and you could drag bodies around and, um, shove them in dumpsters and stuff. Um, and that was great. Uh, I remember messing around with the, uh, the physics system. And again, this is something that makes no sense at all. But, um, as I said earlier, you know, one of my favorite anecdotes of Deus Ex is something that makes absolutely no sense. It's that, uh, guard refusing to shoot me when i'm using a computer um and uh, 2 i figured out a, a route into a building where you stand on top of a dumpster and you want to get up to this balcony that's above you but it's too high to jump but the dumpster opens and so you can't open it when you're standing on it but if you jump and then open it it opens up towards you and the force that is exerted on that physics object just kind of comes from nowhere and so the fact that you're standing on it doesn't prevent you from pushing it upwards, which means you can get yourself higher. So you can jump up, open it. It opens into your feet and then pushes you up and then you jump again from the, <laughs> the opening lid and get up onto a balcony. Um, it had really cool tools like um, you could model the weapons. So one of the playthroughs I did, I played it through multiple times. Um, one of them was uh, I just took four pistols. So the basic pistol, the, the same item, uh, but just modded in four different ways. So I had one that was like rapid fire and every shot split into shrapnel. And the shrapnel one is great because um, the shrapnel itself doesn't do much damage, but it hits everything. And that means, like, if a guard is carrying a grenade, the grenade is physically there on their belt. And if shrapnel hits their grenade when it's on their belt, it just blows them up. <laughs> and so anyone who's carrying a grenade, who's shot with that pistol, their grenade would just go off. So if it's an explosive grenade, they would just be immediately killed. Um, if it's an EMP grenade, it could hurt, uh, it could deactivate bots that are near them. If it's a spider grenade, then it'll go off and start attacking them. <laughs> and so there's loads of really rich systems type stuff like that that I think people, um, that doesn't get talked about anyway. Like, I, I think the people who like Deus Ex 2 are sort of too scared to talk about it because the hatred for it is so strong. Um, and, you know, I agree with almost every criticism of it. I just don't uh, agree that it sort of makes it a terrible game. I just think it makes it less of a um, less of a logical follow-up to Deus Ex and more of its own thing. Um, one of the things that was absurd about it uh, in a bad way was the the way they pitched it was, um, oh, so you know how in Deus Ex you're working for UNATCO, but then you find out, Uh, NSF are the good guys and so you join them Mm. well we're going to make a game where at that point you can decide to stick with UNATCO and play the whole game through as just UNATCO and so like the choice is we don't force you down one route or another you can uh, always choose and it's true, you can always choose but they took that to an extreme that just made no sense so you can always choose at any time and at any time you can switch sides and then you can switch back again and then you can switch back again and no one will ever hold it against you in any meaningful way they will only ever just gripe about it they'll say oh but you work for these guys all right but here's your next job and they wanted to give you so much choice that your choices had no consequences whatsoever and so at one point there's two of the world leaders turn out to be married to each other secretly and uh they're sort of ostensibly rival factions but you can um they're sort of secretly working together to to bring the world into unity or whatever and uh because it's a built in the spirit of deus Ex, you can kill one of them and you're sent to rescue her Uh, but because it's you know not in a in a safe area it's in a combat zone you can i think you can even like she's in like a gas chamber i think you can just gas her using a computer or you can rescue her and then kill her um and in again in the spirit of experimentation i tried that (laughs) i tried killing her and just to find out what the guy who sent me to rescue her who is her husband would say and he says Oh, you're a monster and I hate you but we do need you so here's your next mission <laughs> I just murdered your wife for no reason and you're still giving me the option to carry on working for you guys like, there's, there's a point when I think maybe the factions should just say fuck off <laughs> just get out of my sight
0: Oh god! I I must play DSX2 now. When you like, <laughs> right, you completely sold me on playing it, I have Steam and I've yet to play it. So I think after this, I'm definitely going to go and play it now. Human Revolution, and like you said yourself, like you were kind of debating between either DSX1 or Human Revolution, uh, being the kind of main focal point for this episode. But like, and Human, uh, and like I said, Human Revolution is like the one that I've most played. Like I think I've played about. I'm freaking three quarters... I've three quarters finished the game on Xbox 360, and I've played about a quarter of the game on PC, and it was... And, like, Human Revolution, like, it was such a massive undertaker, especially for an upstart studio like Eidos Montreal, because, like, Eidos Montreal were completely unproven at that point. They had no uh, games out at that time up until Human Revolution. So, like... They, talk of your experience with, with Human Revolution, but also, like, that kind of pressure like Idols Montreal must have faced uh, with Human Revolution, because, like, like I said, it was the first game, but they pulled it off so, yeah. so well.
1: Yeah, it's a miracle. <laughs> um, I saw it as a journalist at Preview, um, and I think it was the first time they'd ever shown any gameplay from it at all. Like, until then, it just been sort of these very vague statements they'd made. And... Um, I was there with uh, Will Porter, who's um, also a massive Deus Ex fan. And um, we're both, I don't think either of us expected it to be good. I think we were both like, I I was kind of in Deus Ex 2 mode. So I was like, you know, I love Deus Ex. I know this isn't going to be Deus Ex, but I'm open to it being something else. You know, if you want to take some lessons from Deus Ex and make something else, then I'm interested in that as well. Um, And then when they actually showed it, uh, it was just like... You kept waiting for it to go wrong. Like every part of the demo I watched, I was like, when is it going to get shit? It's not shit yet. It's really good. <laughs> and it looked like it looked like all of the kind of open-endedness of Deus Ex, but everything you did in it was cool as well. So like when you do sneak up on someone and shoot them in the head, it's with a badass silence pistol that just has, makes the perfect sound and the ragdoll flops in the perfect way. And instead of, I mean, there are plenty of vents in it, but... Um, they're not the only alternate routes in and so like stacking a box uh, on top of another box to reach a window and then opening the window um, I think both me and Will kind of nerded out at that moment because stacking boxes is kind of like (laughs) one of the principal ingredients of a DSX game Um, but then also just I couldn't think of a, if I'd even seen anyone open a window in a game before as like an infiltration method. I was, when I came out to the window, I was expecting him to smash it. And then I realized, oh no, you can just open windows. So that's all the thing you can do. Um, and it just looked like, you know, all of that stuff that I love, but done in a much more slick way. And for the most part, it was, you know, once I actually played it, I absolutely loved it. Um, and uh, it just had that feel of having all these options, but all those options are really cool. And uh, the, probably the biggest difference is. Um, uh, in melee stuff, which is actually like, I kind of focused on melee stuff in deus ex one, even though it was garbage. <laughs> it was, uh, like the feel of hitting someone in deus ex is so bad. It's just like the police baton makes a kind of woo noise when you attack with it. And, uh, when it hits someone it makes this like terrible kind of clack that doesn't feel at all impactful. And then maybe they sort of go Ooh, and fall over or maybe they don't. And, uh, stabbing someone with a knife has almost no effect. <laughs> um, Crowbar was, was kind of satisfying. That was one of the only ones that was actually good to use. Then you get like the Dragon's Tooth Nano Sword, and it looks like a lightsaber that could scythe through any flesh, but instead you just kind of whack people with it and go whoop, 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 and they take a little bit of damage each time. <laughs> and so it was all kind of pathetic. And then Human Revolution went all out on that and did like third person cutscene takedowns for, um, which I thought were going to feel out of place, but actually in game I kind of liked them. And the animations were so uh, brutally horrible that I was always just watching in a mixture of like horror and delight. I was like ex- like appalled at what was happening, but also kind of thinking like, "Wow, <laughs>
0: <laughs> What else did you like about this sexual and that we've not talked about?
1: I guess I did kind of mention this, but the um one of the reasons that human revolution doesn't totally surpass it for me is that direct action is not really viable in, in Deus Ex 1, and it is in Human Revolution, and that I totally understand why they do it, and I think it might even be the right move for the series in terms of it, it's going to make it more popular because people want to play it as a shooter. Um, but that's it just slightly undermines the, the cleverer solutions when you do come up with a really innovative way to get past a situation the fact that deep down you know you didn't have to do that <laughs> is takes a little bit away from that feeling of like, ah, I solved it. Whereas in Deus Ex, the, the crazy solutions I came up with, the ridiculous things that I pulled off, uh, I had to do them. I was in a situation where I was going to die if I didn't do that. And so it felt really satisfying to to know that my ingenuity is what saved me here. Whereas in Human evolution, your ingenuity is kind of performative. You're sort of doing it to show off. It's like, I can do it in this really clever way, and look at how clever it is. And it feels great, and it is still really satisfying. But there's always that knowledge that I could have just shot him. I've got a silent pistol. I could have just shot him, and I could have shot everyone else.
0: <laughs> what else, uh, or rather, what didn't you like about Deus Ex?
1: Um, no, that's a good question. I like For ages, I sort of defended it as perfect, because I kind of felt like... Although it's not that it doesn't have flaws, it's more that the flaws are just so small compared to any other game's flaws that um it has a bunch of stuff about it that's, that I don't care about that is bad, so like every character is really stiff. I don't really care about that. The animation's pretty bad it sort of it looks very awkward and um not very natural um there is there are some sections of the game that kind of drag um there's bits like when you go to Nicolette DeClaire's house and kind of try and uncover the, the mysteries of the mansion, it's sort of becoming a completely different game. And it's kind of, it, it's fine for a bit of a story. Like this is a, a little thing that happens in the story, but making it part of the game means that I'm the kind of person who likes to play through the games. I like multiple times and I don't want to replay that section ever again, really. There's no point. It's not terrible. I just don't have any interest in it. So it's kind of wasted space. Um, I said before, like, the the way they handle Paul's death or not death is completely false and absurd, (laughs) even though, like, the fact that he can die or not die is great and that scene is great, you know, having to fight your way out or not is great but you basically, the the actual mechanics for what determines whether he dies or not are total bullshit. Um, I guess I've already covered that the melee combat is terrible. (laughs) Um, I guess that's one of the things that, it didn't bother me when I was playing it, but once I see it done well in Human Revolution now I realise, oh, the game could have been better if that was better. Um, it's tempting to say stuff like the shooting could be more satisfying, but I kind of think it shouldn't be satisfying. I think if you're shooting, you're sort of doing it wrong. Um, well, not not in all cases, but um, there's the principle on which Bioshock was built was kind of, we want to do an immersive sim, but it has to you know, has to work as an action game. It has to be a satisfying action game to play. And I'm glad that Deus Ex 1 isn't. I'm glad that you just can't play it that way.
0: What, what, what for you is the legacy of Deus Ex?
1: Um... Uh, yeah, I think we're only just starting to see it, really. Like I said, I think Bioshock was the game that sort of took the um, ingredients of the immersive sim and repackaged them in a way that was palatable to the mainstream audience. And then after that, it wasn't so much that like Bioshock uh, taught people that immersive sims could be good. Um, it was more like, loads of game designers who'd really wanted to make a immersive sim for years, I think suddenly got permission to. I think they suddenly could point to a game and say, hey, look, Bioshock sold really well. And that had all these elements. That had all these complicatedly interacting abilities and um, stuff like that. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if if Human Revolution owes a bit of its existence to Bioshock. Um, Like the fact that they were able to do it that way and sort of really make a point of staying true to the original's um, virtues, um, I can easily imagine that they would have been under more pressure to make it uh, less deus sexy if Bioshock had never happened. Um, so yeah, it was kind of like a slow burner, I think, for a long time. it To me, it didn't seem like it was catching on. It wasn't sort of changing the way other people make games in any major way. And then it sort of slowly, the fact that so many people love it and so many Particularly, game designers. I think, <laughs> like Spelunky and Deus Ex, are very common favourites among game designers. Um, uh, it's kind of slowly kicking into gear now. It feels like a like a re- renaissance for the immersive sim. We're getting, you know, Dishonored's a big name, Bioshock is still a big thing, um, Deus Ex is having getting its fourth game, um, and yeah, it feels like everyone's got. Permission to make these games, and it's
0: great. i found we can pretty much uh, notice by now, but just to kind of confirm uh, the ranking uh, top three D- D- DX games 1, 3, 2, right? Uh,
1: yes. Yeah.
0: Honorable mentions. Go for it. Um, I'm
1: going to say Metal Gear Solid Five. I've been playing that to death uh, in probably at least 40 hours now. And uh, usually it would be risky to pick something that you're playing right now because, you know, that you're just discovering. Ah, that's so uh, recent, yeah. Because you get so caught up in the moment. But um, it's hard to imagine this not becoming one of my favorite games of all time. Um, it's such a... It's like... It's got all the things I like about Far Cry 3 and 4, which um, you know. previously I've ranted on and on about the, um, the outposts in Far Cry 3 in particular uh, and 4, uh, which are just like... They're not missions. They're just uh, a settlement of guards with... Um, uh, the, if you take them all out, then it tells you you've taken them all out. And if you do it stealthily, you get a bonus and so on and so on. And Metal Gear has that, but kind of they feel much more designed and they feel much more um they're sort of visually striking and unique and um the set of tools you have is uh really good and it's all just in this one massive open world and i i I haven't really nailed down why it feels so much more like an open world than far cry 3 and 4 did but somehow it does and the way you can um the fact that you can steal things, <laughs> you can just attach balloons thing- to things to steal them, changes how I think about all of the enemies. You're always scanning enemies to figure out whether they're worth abducting or whether you should just kill them. Um, and so the lethal, non-lethal debate is kind of always going on rather than being something that you just decide with your playstyle. Um, and it's really, really satisfying to play. It's extremely forgiving, which I really like. Like, when you get spotted, you get loads and loads of chances to recover and chances to avoid it. Um and control it. And um, there's just so much of it. I've just been playing for so long, and I'm still... I haven't finished the main missions, and I certainly haven't finished the side ops, and I gather you later get a chance to kind of go back and replay those missions with harder enemies and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. Mm. And like the, the other games in this genre... I mean, Far Cry three and four, I guess, did last a long time, but it was always like you do the outposts because you just can't do the main missions because the main missions are just so bad. And uh, Metal Gear Solid, it's in a like to a bizarre extent, the main missions are just like the outposts. Like sometimes they just literally go to the outpost that you were at five minutes ago, and instead of stealing a thing you stole five minutes ago, steal this other thing. And for some people, really don't like that. And like for some people, have complained that it's repetitive because if you do things in the wrong order, or if you happen to have already explored the area that they're sending you to, then it's, um, you're repeating yourself, but the actual challenge of getting into that outpost is different every time um, and I love that stuff, if I'm the, all I want from games like this, once you have a a tool set that's really broad and diverse and interesting and, um uh, stealth mechanics and, uh enemies that that are good to, that are kind of vigilant and difficult to get around and provide real obstacles then all I want from the game from that point is just let me play the game, let me play this (laughs) and I don't mind if you repeat me playing this and I don't mind if I have to come back to the same area a bunch of times Um, I just want those rules to be consistent and I don't want you to interrupt me with some story bullshit where you suddenly say oh but now you, suddenly you decide to shoot the prisoner or suddenly these guys show up and they are not subject to any of the methods that you have used until now. And uh, Metal Gear does do that, but it only does it, like, in the first sort of 30 hours I played it, it did it about three times, and each time was about f- five minutes. <laughs> and so it was like 15 minutes of shit for 30 hours of brilliance. And so the ratio is just uh, extremely favorable.
0: What what lot would you have on there. Oh, um, you mentioned, like, a big influence, and, like, it's certainly gone by Twitter uh, and... Uh, the videos you put out a while back, uh, about two, a few years ago, um, for a daily challenge, Splunky.
1: Yeah, that's definitely um, in the top five. Um, I've played that, I think, about 4,000 times. <laughs> like, not completed it 4,000 times, but just, you know, I've had 4,000 lives. Because it keeps track of it, but I've played it across various different versions and different platforms. And I think um, each one's been about 1,000 each and um yeah it's just the it's the game that's eternally fresh just always generating new levels and always those always create new challenges and um it's it's weird because it kind of it's the game that inspired gunpoint but then i sort of ignored a lot of its lessons for gunpoint like the main lesson from Spelunky is random generation is amazing, and if you do it right, it can keep your game fresh forever. And then I didn't do random generation, because I thought I wouldn't be able to. I thought it'd be too hard. Um, and I'm only just now sort of uh, trying to uh, learn from that lesson and and do random generation in Heat Signature. Um, and I'm still you know, a complete novice at it, so I haven't figured out how to make it brilliant. Um, and yeah, the, the Daily Challenge actually was a like a huge part of Spelunky's appeal because it became like a community. We were, um, I was posting videos of myself doing it, but then so were all my friends. And we made a little site together and um, we would all post our, our attempts at the same challenge. And uh, it was great to, you know, having played it, go and watch other people play it and see, oh, you, you should open that crate, man. There's a jet back in there. Or um, see that they did way better than you. Or um, yeah, it became like a, a real activity. Um, and yeah I love the just the it's actually a very systems driven game like Deus Ex it's very about consistent rules and letting you combine the things it gives you in any way that makes sense um, and figuring out that um, like one of my favorite moments I can't remember I think I have just wrote a blog post about this um, I I sort of covered it in some way I don't think I, I videoed it um, but I was in a uh, I was in the black market which is a, just a series of shops that are uh, in a secret level that it's hard to get to okay. and you can buy almost anything there if you have enough money And um, but it's also a level so there are enemies in it and most of the time it doesn't matter they're just like frogs hopping around on the outskirts and you either deal with them or ignore them um, but they're also sort of tribesmen who throw boomerangs around and so if they see you they throw a boomerang at you so obviously you don't want them to throw a boomerang at you and you particularly don't want them to throw a boomerang at the shopkeeper because uh, if he hits the shopkeeper, the shopkeepers just go crazy. If they're ever injured for any reason, all of them go mad forever and will just jump around firing shotguns in random directions for the rest of their lives. And um, that didn't happen. But one of them had thrown his, his boomerang at something and it hadn't come back. It bounced off something. Um, I can't remember why, but it didn't go back to him. And so he's walking around without a boomerang. And I happen to know that... Um, They will, you know, if they happen to walk past their boomerang later, they'll pick it back up. And if you drop a boomerang, they'll pick that up if they don't have one. And they're just people who want boomerangs. If they don't have a boomerang, they'll pick up a boomerang. And I saw him walk, he'd lost his boomerang, and they walked into a shop, and I realized the shop was selling a boomerang. (laughs) And when a shop sells something, it's just lying on the ground. And you can pick it up, and you can, if you're the player, when you pick it up, you can then buy it and legally own it. And then if you leave the shop, they don't attack you. But, um... If you leave the shop without paying for it, then the shopkeepers go fucking crazy, and all of them go fucking crazy. And I was nowhere near this guy. He was like three levels below me. But I could see this happening, and I could see he was going towards a boomerang, and I realized he's going to pick up the boomerang. And then after he picks up the boomerang, he's going to walk out of the shop, and he's definitely not going to pay for it. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that if shopkeepers get angry when I do that, they're going to get angry when the enemies do that, because Spelunky's about consistent rules. And so I just saw, I just like had this chill of fear go through my whole body of like, oh my god, in like six and a half seconds, the entire world is going to be chaos, and nobody knows this yet except me, and so I just like scampered out of the shop and scrambled up a ladder and hid behind a, like a mound of mud and just like hugged the ground and just prayed that I wouldn't die, <laughs> and sure enough, I like I, I ran away so far that he was off screen, so I didn't even see it happen but yeah, six seconds later, every shopkeeper goes fucking crazy and starts firing shotguns in every direction one guy <laughs> killed the slave that he was selling, and then kept shooting his corpse. Another guy <laughs> shot his dog. Two shopkeepers shot each other. <laughs> it, was, it was just absolute
0: chaos. Oh god! Just, 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 to, just talking about that. Just, you, just, just listening to you talk about that just r- reminds me of how Mason Spelunky is and just how unpredictable it can be. <laughs> oh, I really need to play it again. I really do. Um. So, I think it would be fair to say that if I were to ask you top three games ever, they would be Deus Ex 1, Deus Ex 3, Spelunky, more or less in that order?
1: Yeah. I guess the other one is Hitman Blood Money. Uh-huh. Um, I haven't really given a lot of thoughts to whether that's better than Spelunky or not. Because <laughs> Spelunky, I've played a lot more in, the, in recent years. Um, but Blood Money was incredible, and that was one where you know every mission of that Uh, I would play through like 15 different times and try different methods and very very similar to the appeal of all these other games we've been talking about where there's so many different ways to approach the mission and so many different play styles you can adopt Um, I think yeah, hard to say Mm. but yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that (laughs) listing Yeah, so heat Signature is the the main thing, and that's um, its website is heatsig.com, sig as in the start of Signature, and it's also heatsig on Twitter. Um, I'm pentadact on Twitter, which is P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T, um, and my account is like general stuff, and HeatSignature's account is um, for actual development stuff, and I, I'm much more kind of um, trigger happy with just like complaining about coding problems I'm hitting and sort of Um, more development insight stuff on there
0: Thanks for listening to My Favourite Game. As you may have spotted with Tom Francis on, we would have had the opportunity to talk about Heat Signature, but unfortunately, due to time constraints, I've had to pull that out of this episode. Luckily, I have that segment elsewhere on My Favourite Game website, so you can listen to it in its entirety at myfavoritegame.net. Anyways, next week, Daniel Cito on Final Fantasy 7. Until next week, bye bye.